This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, a very good morning to you. You're listening to The Morning Run. It's six o'clock in the morning on Wednesday, the 10th of August. I'm Philip C. And in the studio today with me is Keith Kam. The uncles are in the <laughs> studio today. Happy hum day, Keith. Yep, happy Uncle Day too. Happy Uncle Day. <laughs> well, Auntie Wong is not available today because she's cavorting around town, uh, you know, doing her manicure and such, I presume. I probably think she is. Uh, she's probably listening in. Yeah, I mean, if she's smart, she'd probably be sleeping, right? <laughs> I hope she's smart enough <laughs> not to listen in. But really, she does. She did, she really does deserve a well-deserved break because she's been back-to-back on the studio with us. Yeah, that's true. Uh, she, yeah, I mean... We know her presence every time she's here. <laughs> we, we, we hear her all the time. We feel, we feel her ominous <laughs> presence surrounding us. But in any case, regardless, we have a very packed show for you today because at 7.15, it's all about the rate hikes and how they will impact Malaysian banks. And what are the pockets of risk for... And Willy Tanato, Director in Fitch Ratings Asia Pacific Financial Institutions team, gives his perspective. We also uh, speak to Jason Lowe, the Head of Social Law and Human Rights at MA Research, whether he should believe... Whether we should believe the Deputy Finance Minister, Datuk Muhammad Shah Abdullah, because he said that the gradual increase in the overnight policy rate does not have a significant impact on the lower income households. Really? I'm quite surprised with that statement. I mean... Uh, I would, mind-boggling? It's mind-boggling because, the, I mean, the fact that if interest rates go up, uh, your repayments go up. So... I'm yes, not I think sure at what point you don't get impacted by that. Perhaps they may not have that as many financial commitments as what maybe the middle income do, but I'm sure there will be some trickle-down economics when it comes to that. For sure. But beyond just the whole discussion on rates, we also take a global picture and have a discussion with Jia Ian Chong about what the implications of Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last week was and how China's response has been. I mean, we've seen a whole series of military activity as well as economic sanctions imposed uh, by China on Taiwan, isn't it? But that's the thing. I mean, President Xi Jinping, the CCP, they've got like a very um, thin line to... I mean, they, yes. have to, they have to show that they are doing something. At yeah. the same time, they probably don't want to provoke a war because, I mean, war just doesn't benefit anyone. It, it doesn't benefit anyone. He has the October's uh, right. key Congress taking right. place. Presumably, it will be all status quo. Perhaps things might change after that. But let's just see, right? But anyway, please do stick around with us because we have a lot coming through. All this and more on The Morning Run. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. That was I Never by Rilo Kylie. I have never, ever done a show with Keith Come until today. Yeah, it's a first for everyone, right? First for everyone. Yeah. I don't think we've ever had two uncles on the show. <laughs> I'm sure we have. But in any case, let's turn to our first story today, which is from the Wall Street Journal podcast. Again, one of my favourite podcasts. And I think it's a story that is a sign of times uh, with reflection due to the Ukraine, Russian-Ukraine war. And the title is Europe is Turning to Coal and What Does That Mean? for climate change. You know, we've had many conversations before about the point about Europe's energy security and supply very much being uh, in trouble as a result of the Russian-Ukraine crisis because, as we all know, Europe is dependent on Russian gas. Mm -hmm. Since then, sanctions have been imposed. And as a result, you know, the reality is instead of relying on Russian gas, they've had to turn to alternative energies. They've gone backwards in a way. They've gone backwards yeah. and there's no choice, I think. That's the problem here. But the in consequence for that is that what does this mean for climate change? Yeah, but that's that's just it. I mean, it's like um, the the effects of the impact of climate change can literally be seen um, as much as you want to to, to yeah. deny it. I mean, you've got you've got uh, forest fires, wildfires in uh, in Spain, in the southern in southern France, in northern Italy. Uh, so, I, 
and 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 record breaking heat waves as well. So, I I suppose at some point, you know, you need to have a balance whether you want to have uh, lower energy prices. Uh, in this, in their case, right now, it's not not even so much as lower energy prices, but energy, energy, right? Yeah, Just the supply general. and yeah. security in place. The question here is, how do you strike that balance? Because actually, the push to alternative renewable energies is a necessity, even for the long term, right? Even for for the purposes of energy supply, you do need to go there. So I think Europe has that very delicate balance of meeting the short-term requirement for this coming winter, but also needing to pivot and drive for clean energy solutions that are independent and renewable in the future as well, which has a dual benefit of energy security and climate change. But if you look at it, uh, it most of the renewable energy targets uh, come in 2030 and 2050. 40, 20, 50 onwards. Mm. That's a long time. For all you know, by that time, the war could have ended at, you know, in some form or another. Yeah, it's a moot point by then. Mm. I think that's why, you know, many people uh, do criticise and comment that, look, you know, you set a 2050 target. What does it mean in the interim? Are you going to give us interim near-term targets, right? What are you going to do in 25, 30, 35, 40? Because as this podcast was saying, coal production really has gone back to where it was, to the peak of 2013. It's so record highs. It's yeah. record high levels. And I think there's really no choice. So I, I I reflect a lot about the discussion in Europe about energy supply, why someone like Germany had had been so against nuclear power, right? But now it seems to be a necessary reality. And that's why you see many European countries like France, Czech Republic right. and such, adopt nuclear energy as a key requirement for their energy supply. And they are less... Uh, and you're less vulnerable, right, to Russian uh, gas. I, I can't help thinking that there's a bit of irony here when you think about it. Uh, Donald Trump, back when he was president, he had always been advocating for more coal use. I mean, he even yeah. pulled out of the Paris uh, Paris Agreement. Uh, if his house wasn't raided uh, yesterday, he'd probably be <laughs> laughing. <laughs> he wouldn't be laughing now for sure based on that raid that took place. Although he might be laughing in the longer term because I think there's a pro-benefit of that raid to him. But you're right, the issue here is coal is cheap. That is the fundamental problem here. I think it's also a challenge in Malaysia and around uh, this part of the region. Energy supply is very much dependent on non-renewable and the reality is it's still very cheap. Because as you say, the installation of solar panels, wind farms, all that is complex and will take time. It will take a lot of time and maintenance and the knowledge on how to use it, uh, getting getting people on board and ensuring it's a steady supply all the time mm. for the for, for an mm. entire country. That is a huge, huge challenge. You know, and, and you say getting people on board, look, we can even build all these installations, but how do you distribute the energy? How do you store the energy? That I think is the fundamental concern we have, right, in terms of getting energy supply and security. It's not only about the generation side, but it's also the transmission and the distribution of the energy going forward. But look, I feel like I mean, when you when you think about it, even um, a simple thing like an electric car, uh, it's so difficult to get someone to get on board with right. it because it's expensive. Yep. It's uh, it's charging facilities. The infrastructure is still not in place. As much as I love the new Hyundai Ioniq, um, it's unlikely. Are you plugging that car? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I saw one parked outside yesterday. <laughs> well, you know, I think this is going to be an ongoing saga. I'm going to keep on monitoring this to see whether or not we succeed in that climate transition. We're heading into a quick break and when we come back, we'll be discussing baggage handlers. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. That was Live Forever by Oasis. I wouldn't want to live forever. Keith, would you? No, no, definitely not. Well, in case you don't (laughs) know who... I mean, if... 
if um if I'm gonna be still healthy and and you why know, not able to go running and you know visit the world and sure right yeah, but then inev- I will live but inevitably we all decay isn't it we <laughs> that, all decay and degrade that is the sad truth yeah. what a wonderful we way to hair. start your Wednesday morning right with decay degrade and loss of hair in your scalp <laughs> this is the morning run I'm Philip C and with me is Keith Cum now we turn to the next story where something we definitely do want to live forever is the chaos that's taking place in airports around the world. And what we've seen so far in the past few days, some novel ideas on how we're going to sort out and resolve this issue. And one such example is Qantas, the Australian airline. Now, they have asked their managers to trade their high-profile positions to work as ground handlers as part of a plan to combat labour shortages all across the airports. I think like many of us here who have been to the airport, we've seen the chaos, especially in Europe, the baggages all being lost and, yeah. and all collecting behind in these uh, hangars and such. Well, um, when I came back from uh, Europe a few mo- a couple of months back, um, my luggage didn't come back with me. How long did it take? Um, for them? Not, it wasn't too bad. It was just two days. They, two days. They sent it over to the house. But you know, the, the the thing is, it's a good thing that I was coming home. Just imagine if I had been going over to Europe yes. and I didn't have my luggage. And yes, you, you would know, have to wear your underwear for forty eight hours straight. Tell me about it, or not at all. Okay. Well, that was too much information, but I just want to get your perspective. Do you think it's a good idea for management to have been asked to take on these roles? Because here, inherently, there's a shortage of of labour, right? in the organisation. And if you look at the backstory behind this, what ha- what happened was during the pandemic, Qantas had about sacked about 1,600 baggage handlers. They then outsourced it to contractors. It was clearly evident the contractors were not able to, d- to deliver the service required as recovery took place. So do you think it's fair and correct that now Qantas asks its own employees, particularly its managers, to come down and actually sort out baggage. A um, couple of issues here uh, I have with this. Uh, one is that um, it's just bad management that you know you 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 ended up in this this sort of a situation. Yeah. So that's probably not the right way to go. But uh, having said that, if um, all things being equal, I might sound a bit fascist here, but the, the or communist here. But the thing is, uh, it's always good to have. Uh, it's always good that. High-profile managers, uh, people in management, know what everybody else is doing because one, uh, you are able to appreciate um, the the hard work that they put in, yeah. uh, and two, um, if someone says they can't do it, you know that they can because you can. Well, I think that's a. I mean, well, thank you for that left-leaning perspective. <laughs> I guess the the bigger question for me actually is more the safety and regulatory standpoint because in in the airport you work in a very secure environment. Mm-hmm. Whether these managers also have the skills and expertise and the training given, right, to make sure that they can sort out baggage because you're actually operating in a secure environment. And perhaps sometimes when managers come into the mix in the midst of operations, they can be actually a deterrent, a hindrance, an irritation actually, and may not help the situation because they they you know they just make the situation worse, right, as a manager trying to get into the fray of how day-to-day operations is as well. But I'm also assuming that there is some level of training that, that, Let's that assume goes that, on, yeah. right? Yeah, so if, if um, all things being equal, there's some training involved I think it's a it's a good idea to get managers um, experience and and involved in knowing what actually goes on rather than sit behind their desks and you know uh, 
telling everybody that you should do this, you should that's, do that, without realizing whether it's possible or not. That's a very fair point. I think you do want managers to be able to have some empathy, hands on, yeah. hands on, and understand what the situation is going on the ground. But to be honest, also managers also have to play that critical role of being taking that managerial role, isn't it, or having that oversight. So I wonder whether this will compromise their current managerial roles that they're taking on. Because, you know, there is some perception or key assumption, high assumption made here is that as a manager, you should be value adding at the managerial level. But perhaps not, that's not the case, right? Based on Dilbert comic books, we see. <laughs> yeah, my favourite is speaking to me right there. But the thing is, uh, if, if they are doing what they're supposed to be doing managerially, then there might not be a problem with uh, 1,600 baggage handlers being sacked during lockdown and having yeah. to outsource because uh, these are issues that I suppose as a manager, you should be able to have some models that uh, you can rely on yeah. um, to, to figure out what the scenario would be going forward. I see. I think that's what you, you talk about contingency planning mm. and scenario planning. I saw a very novel idea happening in Amsterdam, Skipo Airport, they got their retirees to come back and help. I thought that was a very interesting way of doing that. How do you engage, you know, you know, retirees or even friends of the company or whatever to join in and participate and perhaps even help in that form? Oh, you mean like when we had a shortage of English teachers and our uh, Ministry of Ed- Education uh, asked the retired teachers to come back and work? Well, do you think that's a bad idea? I think it's not bad, <laughs> I think actually. it's a brilliant idea, to be yes. honest. Yeah. Well, you know, those old retired teachers, they will basically instruct and discipline us all back into order. Uh, well, Those days. <laughs> those good old days. As we head on to the 6am news bulletin, we'll come back with this and look at international headlines coming up next. You Can't Hurry Love by the Supremes. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. 10th of August. You are listening to The Morning Run with me and Keith Kam, Philip C. Uh, we are the two charlatans, isn't it? Yeah, I was just, yeah. We are the two charlatans. We are the two charlatans today, Charlatan actually. Charlatan uncles, yes. yeah. <laughs> Charlatan uncles. Now let's have a look at the stories that made international headlines this morning. Yeah, so uh, one of the main stories that's going on, um, it's been going on since yesterday after we f- yeah. we, we finished the morning session. Uh, there was a raid on Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. The, the thing is, what was interesting was that um, the FBI, they conducted a raid on Donald Trump's home um, and we know because about it because Trump himself issued a statement on it. Uh, the FBI just generally when they conduct raids they do it um, as quietly as they can so as not to uh, cause too much commotion and for the press to come and uh, of course Donald Trump well, would, he turn would this into, he? yeah he would he would yeah. turn this into into a into he a, would want to turn this into a circus I mean honestly um, you know this raid is to his benefit yeah it, it, he will make it into his benefit uh, yeah. anyway the search is reportedly linked to an investigation into um, how Trump handled classified and sensitive material mm-hmm. um, because US presidents are required by something called the Presidential Records Act to transfer all of the documents and emails to the National Archives. Because understandably, a lot of discussions and notes that uh, US presidents uh, keep while while in office can be considered can can be considered top secret, and top secret generally means that uh, if it's leaked to anyone, um, especially their en- enemies, mm. it could be detrimental to national security as well. So I was just listening to a couple of talk radio over in the US, and they they contrast uh, this whole incident with Nixon Watergate, where there was a similar rate, although they are very different parallels. And in this case here, you know, Keith, you said the point that you know Trump would want this to happen, and it is to his benefit, I think, that this rate this does take place right politically. Because, you know, there are three key elements that really run to his benefit. One is that 
publicity is all over mm. the newspapers. He loves publicity. That's number one. Number two, who doesn't like a martyr in this whole process? You must remember as well that during the uh, the, the the last presidential election, seventy over million people voted for him. That's seventy yeah. million people who believe what he say. So um, it, it, that is that is you're a energizing huge the base. Exactly, you're totally energizing the base. And what actually you're seeing here is that the Republicans have actually come out to denounce the raid, and even some Democrats have come out to say, "Hey." Justice Department, can you please be clear on the basis and principle of the raid? Like, tell us and give us a detailed blow by blow what's happening here with respect to the raid. Because I think they're worried that this could be to the benefit of the Republicans in the coming midterms. And it and it always will be because the victims are always the ones who um, end up getting the sympathy sympathy vote. That's in this right. Case. Yeah. So, so I think there are parallels also here in Malaysia, right, where we talk about martyrs, where you see people, you know, going through court cases and how, you know, perhaps the system is against them. And this is where sometimes it's very important, where sometimes political parties try to not take advantage and make someone a martyr in the process. Um, but there's, the, there's also always the question of credibility when it comes to the, uh, uh, the, the part of the prosecution. Um, yeah, like you said, case in point, uh, yeah. when when Dato Sri Anwar Ibrahim was uh, was was con- was jailed and uh, convicted and jailed of uh, you know the crimes that he uh, had commit he had allegedly committed, and then what we are seeing now with uh, Dato Sri Najib Razak and and Zaid, uh, Hamidi. Zaid Hamidi as well, um, you you can't help thinking that it's always the underdogs who get the most uh, exposure. Yes. Yeah. So and, and you, you, you you talked about how Trump uh, was turning this into his benefit. Yeah. He's already started. It's been less than 24 hours since the raid. He's already started sending out uh, texts and uh, for emails fundraising. for fundraising. Uh, in the message, he says, as they watch my endorse, I can't do a Trump accent. As they watch my <laughs> endorse candidates win big victories and see my dominance in all polls, they are trying to stop the party and me once more. He kept calling it a witch hunt, uh, calling it a lawlessness political persecution. It must be expose and stop and please donate money. I wonder <laughs> if he's addressing it to his also Republican opponents who are also considering a run for the 2024 seat race, right? Because what always happens is after the midterms, then the real heat builds up for the presidential elections in 2024. And of course, as you know, for both parties, there's a primary that takes place. Uh, in the Republican side, there are a lot of very strong candidates being considered. One is Ron DeSantis, mm-hmm. who has actually taken a more Trumpian view towards things. And so I think is this a kind of a warning sign like, hey, I'm also in contention for the 2024 race. It'll be very interesting to to watch this space uh, as, 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 the day, um, as, as the story plays out to see yeah. um, what's going to happen at immediately the midterm elections and whether or not he's actually going to run because, you know, people are saying he really is. Watch this space. (laughs) It's 6.47 and when we come back, we'll be looking at today's local headlines. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Talking about Revolution by Tracy Chapman, I'm Philip C and my comrade in show today is Keith Kam. Hello, hello. Are we ready for Revolution, Keith? Um, Oh, that's very seditious to say, but yeah. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, in case we can't get into that, let's at least get into local news. Keith, what's yeah. stuck on your entry? All right. So literally, this is what's been dominating the headlines uh, this week. Uh, again, on the online portals, the literal combat ship scandal is still up there. This time, opposition leader Dato Sri Anwar Ibrahim, he is demanding former Prime Minister Dato Sri Najib Razak and the former Defence Minister Dato Ahmad Zahid Hamidi. He wants them to explain their involvement in the project. Um, and this time, Anwar also included the current defence minister, uh, Dato Sri Hisham Muddin Hussein. Um, also, there's been 
In fact, all this happened yesterday. Tan Sri Muhyiddin, the former PM, he posted on Facebook that he wants a Royal Commission of Inquiry on this issue as well. Okay. Uh, in Facebook, he said that, um, you know, how can we trust uh, Zahid after all this? I mean, that's Zahid is always gu- gunning to be, a, to be next Prime Minister as that's well. That's Anwar Ibrahim? No, that, that's, that's Muhyiddin Yassin. Muhyiddin Yassin. Muhyiddin Yassin. Because Yassin. Anwar and Ibrahim and Zahid, aren't they allegedly BFFs then? Um, in a way. <laughs> so And uh, Amno Youth is also calling for an RCI, so... Yeah, yeah, that's why I'm shaking my head, right? We had a meeting, we had a podcast interview with Wong Ka Wong yesterday from the PAC Public Accounts Committee. There's a further investigation going on on that side. As you say, many are calling for a Royal Commission of Inquiry. Uh, Amno Youth, that is Sri Ashraf, that uh, Ashraf Wajid Dusuki has called mm-hmm. for RCI. There are also former Defence Minister Mat Sabu and also Deputy Minister Liu Chin Tong have called also for a probe. Uh, to take place, right? So everybody is calling for more investigations to take place. So where are we going to call it, coalesce and decide what is the right path to seek a resolution here? I think that is uh, that would be the right path to actually get uh, an independent um, inquiry into this whole thing because I think it kind of all stems from um, this practice that we have in, in Malaysia's government, um, something called direct negotiations, mm. um, something that um, I feel that Unless it's a specific project that no other company can actually give you, uh, can can actually deliver, um, things need to go through an open tender uh, as opposed to to direct negotiations because that generally opens it up to a lot of uh, hanky-panky. And in this case... um, there'll be even more hanky-panky because it, it, it deals with Malaysia's uh, national security. It's uh, military equipment. It's military equipment. Yeah. I think the interesting thing here is there were two te- there were two bidders for this contract and they had decided on one bidder on July the 8th and then miraculously within three days they changed the bidder from that original to the second one on July the 11th. So perhaps that's the biggest challenge we have, right? That is one of the challenges that we have uh, but that's just it. I mean, it's the way the government, government works so, you know, um, whether this is going to be an ongoing thing or not, uh, you know, we can we can see. I I, I do remember as well covering um, uh, the Pakatan Harapan government when it was when it was in power. Uh, I did ask Lim Guan Ning, who was uh, finance minister at that time, about um, the practice of direct negotiations and 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 um, and calling for open tenders. He did explain to me that uh, there are there are certain instances where direct negotiations are necessary but sure. yeah but what a responsible government and I guess how do you disclose to, it right mm. to say that it was a function of a direct negotiation so I think that's a story that keeps on dominating headlines I think one headline that struck me is actually from the Ministry of Health looking at the right numbers the Ministry of Health warns of underreporting as it views severity of COVID cases as you saw overnight 2,863 new cases I actually don't believe that number I don't believe that number I mean uh, it definitely is underreported we aren't as vigilant as before um, how how many people wear masks nowadays? Yeah, and I think the question is, this is not an issue only in in Malaysia, but globally, right? Because as we see the number of cases likely placed, and I know anecdotally a lot of people also are f- uh, falling prey to COVID, people are just not reporting it as well. I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have here, isn't it? I think uh, a lot of conversations we have with our friends nowadays would be like, hey, did you catch COVID yet? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a badge of honour, is it, if you have not re- caught COVID yet? I think I mentioned this before, but uh, I learned a new term. Uh, it's, a, it's a portmanteau of uh, two words, COVID and virgin. So if you haven't caught COVID, yet you're a virgin 
Okay. <laughs> On that really interesting point, and thank you for increasing our lexicon here, we're heading into the 7am news bulletin and when we come back, we'll be looking at how markets closed. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.